0: Unmade. Welcome to the Unmade podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks. I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 3. Phone Hacking, Paywalls and Grin Fucks In which scandals beset the Murdoch Empire in Australia and overseas, while Kim Williams sets about remaking News Limited top to bottom, which makes him enemies amongst its editors. A visit to the inner sanctum of the CEO of News Limited is a lesson in intimidating power dynamics. It's July 2009, midwinter in Sydney, and threatening to rain. I push through the revolving door into the bustling grand-floor lobby of the company's Holt Street headquarters and make myself known at the front desk. After the receptionist calls upstairs to check that I'm expected, I'm handed a pass and sent through the security barriers to the lifts. I press button 5, which will take me to the floor known throughout News Limited as Mahogany Row. I step out into another much quieter lobby, this one with the air of an expensive hotel. Oil paintings adorn the walls, which are painted a tasteful cream. In front of a lift is a sculpture of a naked couple in a tight embrace. Opposite one another are two black leather sofas. In the centre, a coffee table is covered with a pile of newspapers. On top is proprietor Rupert Murdoch's favourite, The Australian, which he launched back in 1964. Also on the table is today's edition of the Daily Telegraph and copies of the company's three big magazines, Vogue, GQ and Donna Hay. I perch on one of the sofas. It's low enough to make getting back up slightly awkward when John Hardigan's secretary almost immediately emerges through a set of double doors to fetch me. We pass the offices occupied by Rupert Murdoch's son-in-law, Alistair MacLeod, Chief Financial Officer Stephen Rue, and the boss of news digital media, Richard Frudenstein. At the end of the corner, to the left, is Murdoch's office, which remains empty when he's out of town. Beyond his office is the kitchen, where cakes and biscuits are baked for the executives at 10am every day. We turn right Outside John Hardigan's office is a rack containing a week's worth of news-limited papers from around the country. Along with the telly and the Oz, there's the Herald Sun from Melbourne, the Courier-Mail from Brisbane, Adelaide's Advertiser, and the weekend edition of the Sunday Times from Perth. Some of the company's big regional papers are on the rack too, including the Geelong Advertiser, Cairns Post, Tansville Bulletin, and Gold Coast Bulletin. The power imbued in those newspapers is the reason why the man I'm about to meet is on first-name terms with every significant politician in the country. As we step into his office, Hardigan gets up from his desk at the window and guides me to a couch. He looks younger than his 62 years. His hobby of boxing has left him in good health. I've fallen out with one of the most powerful people in the country, And I'm here to make peace with Harto. Nine months later, the gathering storm. There was no moment in its nine decades that News Corp had been more powerful around the world. And there was no moment when the company would face more simultaneous challenges. In Australia, News Limited, as the local arm was known was setting the news agenda with a tabloid in every capital city. In Sydney and Melbourne, the Daily Telegraph and Herald Sun handsomely outsold Fairfax's broadsheets as ever. Brisbane and Adelaide were one-paper towns with the Courier-Mail and the advertiser in charge. And in Perth, A decades-long truce with the West Australian saw News Limited dominating the weekend with the Sunday Times. The national operation included the Australian and high-traffic general news website news.com.au. The company, which began in Adelaide in 1923, was also at the height of its influence around the rest of the English-speaking world. In the US, Fox News was set in the agenda for conservative politics, while Rupert Murdoch's long-term target, The Wall Street Journal, had been captured in 2007 to join the New York Post in the company's portfolio. The company had also owned film and TV studio 20th Century Fox since 1985. The British arm, News International, owned daily tabloid The Sun and Sunday tabloid News of the World, along with The Times and The Sunday Times. It also controlled the highly profitable satellite broadcaster, BSkyB. b The company was even a major player in social networking. Admittedly, the fast-growing Facebook had recently overtaken News Corp's biggest digital property, MySpace, in popularity, but the site was still the most influential property in the music industry. The only way was down. The company was about to go through a miserable couple of years in which its power was challenged from all directions. Its hold over NRL would be loosened and the company's reputation would be trashed in a scandal. And all this would come just as the company faced up to the digital disruption that was threatening to ruin its business models. First came the Melbourne Storm Scandal. It broke in April 2010. NRL Premiership winners Melbourne Storm had for the past five years been rorting the code's salary cap. And News Limited was in the middle of the scandal. Not only did the company own 50% of the NRL, but it also owned Storm. And on the East Coast, NRL was the most important content for Fox Sports jointly owned by News Limited and the James Packer-aligned Consolidated Media Holdings. For the previous five years, Melbourne Storm had, as the NRL investigators put it, been keeping two sets of books. Most sporting codes in Australia enforce salary caps for players in an attempt to level the playing field between clubs. For the NRL in 2010, each club was limited to spending 4.1 million dollars on the top 25 players. However, Storm had negotiated side deals with some of its most important players to get around the cap. They were promised boats, gift vouchers, and even home renovations. It would later emerge that over 5 years, the club had blown past the cap by 3.17 million dollars. News limited Storm had cheated its way to victory. The outside world learned of the scandal and the punishment at the same time. The punishment was the harshest in the history of Australian sport. The club was stripped of its 2007 and 2009 premierships and its 2006, 2007 and 2008 minor premierships. It would also play the 2010 season for zero points. News Limited raced to distance itself from the scandal as coverage became tribal with Fairfax outlets asking questions about how high within the organisation knowledge of the breaches had gone. News Limited's Melbourne tabloid The Herald Sun quoted Chief Executive Hardigan as labelling Storm CEO Brian Waldron as Chief Rat. The paper put the headline, Rats Face Jail. On the front page. In February 2012 News Limited formally ended its 50% ownership of NRL, handing the reins back to the Australian Rugby League Commission. In May 2013 News Limited sold Melbourne Storm to a private consortium. But it was by no means the company's only problem. Almost simultaneously News Limited had a further embarrassment in Victoria. Bruce Guthrie sacked as the editor of The Herald Sun in November 2008, called in the lawyers. The court case began on 27th of April 2010. As internal politics were laid bare in court, the case was reported in detail across rival media, including Fairfax's The Age. The evidence suggested that while Melbourne Managing Director Peter Blunden had regularly been complaining behind Guthrie's back to John Hardigan, Harto had done little to resolve the issue. Both Hardigan and Blunden came across poorly in the witness box. Justice Stephen Kay took an unusually short time for a civil case to deliver a verdict, just 10 days. He ruled for Guthrie, questioning the credibility of both Blunden and Hardigan as witnesses and ordered News Limited to pay damages of $665,000 plus costs. Guthrie later wrote a book, Man Bites Murdoch, about his time with News Limited. When I interviewed him about it, he gave a rare insight into the politics of the News Limited executive class. It was so profitable in the 80s and 90s that you could almost put it on autopilot. And when that happens, you do get those inter wars within organisations. I spent a lot of my time just fighting to stay in the job. That's disastrous. Good organisations get a sense of teamwork happening and everyone's working for each other. That got lost somewhere along the way in newspapers. So much talent was chased out of the industry. Oh, humble day. For all that, the storm disaster and the Guthrie humiliation were the least of it. Far worse was brewing in London. Usually the travails of News Corp companies in other parts of the world didn't attract much attention in Australia. The UK phone hacking scandal, which was about to explode, was the exception. For decades, News of the World was the ultimate distillation of a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. Agenda setting, campaigning, populist and powerful. With roots going back to 1843, the paper was bought by Murdoch in 1969, his first outside Australia. It was to be a spiritual sister title to The Sun, which he acquired a few months later. The two newspapers, with their bold, white-on-red mastheads, had given birth to the phrase red tops to describe tabloid newspapers. News of the World was easily the UK's best-selling newspaper, selling more than 2 million copies a week. No paper had better sources, with tendrils reaching into the upper levels of politics, the police, show business, and the royal family. It was a formidable operation. Week in and week out, the newspaper broke big stories and exposed celebrity secrets. The Sun and News of the World were Rupert Murdoch's ultimate source of influence in UK politics. On 8th of July 2009, The Guardian newspaper ran the first of what were to be many pieces revealing that News of the World journalists had been hacking into voicemails left on the mobile phones of prominent people. Investigative journalist Nick Davis revealed... Rupert Murdoch's Newsgroup Newspapers has paid out more than £1 million to settle legal cases that threatened to reveal evidence of his journalists' repeated involvement in the use of criminal methods to get stories. The security flaws around mobile phones with default password settings was an open secret among UK journalists at the time. The technique was for one person to call a target celebrity's number. As the call connected a second person would dial the same number and be diverted to the celebrity's voicemail. They'd then be able to use a PIN code to listen to the messages. In many cases, the celebrities had never changed the number from its default setting. Even if they had changed it, newspapers would commission private detectives to obtain the PIN codes by bribing people inside the phone company. Those voicemail messages were the source of hundreds of news stories. Gradually, more people, many of them celebrities or footballers, began to get in touch, believing that the News of the World may have run stories about them based on stolen voicemails. The Guardian revealed that the News of the World royal editor, Clive Goodman, and private investigator, Glenn Mulcair, who had been sentenced to prison back in 2007 for intercepting messages had been involved on a larger scale. Police had uncovered evidence that Goodman and Mulcair had obtained PIN codes for multiple victims, but the cops had failed to act upon it. It began to look like an indefensibly close relationship between News of the World executives and top levels of the police force may have been a factor. The stakes were high, and political, and they potentially stretched to Australia. The story still didn't take off, though. In March 2010, The Guardian tried another tack, reaching out to The New York Times to share what information it had. The liberal-leaning New York Times, a close competitor of News Corp's Wall Street Journal, sent three journalists to the UK and finally published its first report in September 2010. It rapidly became an international story. Meanwhile, News Corp was closing on one of Rupert Murdoch's long-held ambitions, to complete a full takeover, of satellite broadcaster, B-Sky-B, in which it had owned a 39.1% stake since 1990. Murdoch had gambled the fortunes of the company on launching Sky Television, before merging with rival British Satellite Broadcasting, to create a hugely important driver of profit for the company. Thanks mainly to English Premier League soccer and Test cricket being behind paywalls, household take-up of satellite television in the UK was much higher than it ever got in Australia, where major sports and teams were not behind paywalls thanks to stronger anti-siphoning legislation. The final stages of regulatory approval for the BSkyB takeover were imminent as the phone hacking scandal bubbled. Given the company's warm relationship with the now-ruling Conservative Party, it appeared to be in the bag. But The Guardian wasn't just reporting, it was campaigning. It put together a coalition of politicians, campaigners and celebrities working to expose the phone hacking. Pressure was growing on the police and legal cases were gradually coming to court. News Corp's strategy of keeping matters out of court and privately paying off victims while securing their silence with confidentiality agreements was no longer working. Early in 2011, the company suspended News of the World's news editor, Ian Edmondson, and sacked him three weeks later. The company had begun to change its strategy, Conceding that there had been incidences of misbehaviour, insisting they were down to a small number of rogue mid level journalists. It announced a comprehensive internal inquiry. Then court documents revealed the involvement of not just Edmondson in commissioning phone hacking, but his predecessor in the role, Greg Miske. It was starting to look systematic. Thanks to the negative publicity, The Metropolitan Police Service, which had until this point appeared to drag its feet in investigating allegations, finally began to get moving. On the 9th of February 2011, the Met launched Operation Wheating. Public figures, who had previously been unable to get help out of the police, now found that officers were approaching them. Eventually, the investigating officers reached out to hundreds of potential victims. Senior Labour politicians learned that, while they'd been in government, many of them had had their voicemails systematically intercepted on behalf of the News of the World, and that even when the police had become aware of it, they had not told their political masters. The debate about the closeness of the police force and the publisher began to move to the top of the UK political agenda. Nonetheless, the Conservative government remained poised to give the green light to the B-Sky-B takeover. The company's strategy of blaming individuals and denying knowledge at a senior level seemed to be working. Finally, the B-Sky-B approval was just days away. It would be the culmination of 20 years of work by Rupert Murdoch. And then came the news story that changed it all. On the 5th of July 2011, The Guardian reported that in 2002, the News of the World had hacked the voicemails of a missing schoolgirl, Millie Dowler. The disappearance and search for the 13-year-old girl had been a major news story, so much so that even a decade on, Millie Dowler's name was familiar to the public. She had been abducted and murdered with a Remains fan six months later. The Guardian scoop revealed In the last four weeks, the Met officers have approached Surrey police and taken formal statements from some of those involved in the original inquiry, who are concerned about how News of the World journalists intercepted and deleted the voicemail messages of Millie Dowler. The messages were deleted by journalists in the first few days after Millie's disappearance in order to free up space for more messages. As a result, Friends and relatives of Millie concluded wrongly that she might still be alive. Police feared evidence may have been destroyed. The apparent callousness of deleting the messages, especially when it meant giving the family false hope, created a wave of revulsion. Although the Guardian would later concede that while the messages had been listened to, they had probably not been deliberately deleted, a bomb went off. The hacking of a murdered schoolgirl's phone was different. The story was everywhere. And politicians who had spent decades courting Rupert Murdoch finally ran in the opposite direction. Prime Minister David Cameron, a personal friend of News International boss Rebecca Brooks, who'd been editor of the News of the World at the time of Millie Dowler's abduction, condemned it as a dreadful act. Finally, the rest of the press pack joined in. Families bereaved in London's July 2005 terrorist bombings had also been hacked, according to the Daily Telegraph in London. The BSkyB bid now looked all but over as attacks came from all sides. Advertisers began to desert not just the news of the world, but all of the company's UK newspapers. Stunningly, on Thursday the 7th of July 2011, in a last-ditch effort to save the BSkyB takeover, Murdoch made the ultimate call. He announced the closure of what had been the world's most successful Sunday newspaper. The 10th of July edition of the News of the World would be the last. The government decided to delay its ruling on the BSkyB bid. Crucially to the bid, the British communications regulator Ofcom had to be satisfied that anyone who held a broadcasting licence in the UK was fit and proper. Ofcom was asked to consider where the News Corp now passed this test. If it failed, the company might even be barred from keeping its original stake in B, let alone buy the rest. The unravelling accelerated. Rebecca Brooks resigned and was arrested. In the US, Les Hinton, boss of the Wall Street Journal, who had previously run the UK business, was ousted from the company too. There were more scalps. Before the weekend was over, Sir Paul Stevenson resigned as Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. The next day, Assistant Commissioner John Yates also resigned. It had become the biggest political scandal in a generation of British politics. Questions were asked about practices in Australia. Unusually, Hardigan gave an interview to Lee Sales from the ABC's 730 to deny that there had been any similar wrongdoing in Australia. I know the newsrooms, I know how cultures develop, and I'm hugely confident that there is no improper or unethical behaviour in our newsrooms, he told Sales. Rupert Murdoch's lowest point still lay ahead. Along with his son James, who'd been Executive Chairman of News International in the UK for four years at that point, he was called to appear before Parliament's Select Committee for Culture, Media and Sport on the 20th July 2011. Media watchers in Australia were up into the small hours to view the hearing. Murdoch Sr. appeared to be close to broken. He grovelled, breaking into his son's opening remarks to declare, This is the most humble day of my life. I wrote about the moment the next morning on Mumbrella. The legend is much bigger and more daunting than the 80-year-old man who sat in a parliamentary committee room for hours last night. Those who've worked for him talk often about his grasp of details. Anecdotes of his knowledge of ink costs and individual paper and the like are enough to make every one of his 50,000 or so staff think that the eye of Rupert may just turn towards them. He may not actually be omnipresent, but it feels that way to many of those who work for him. His editors fear his phone call and pass that down the line and into the company culture. I think that finally changed last night. Many saw for the first time that he's no longer at the height of his powers. He was vague, which isn't surprising for a man of his age, but will be to many of his staff. There was no a few good men moment last night where Murdoch cracked and blurted out the facts. Instead, it showed how much he has come to rely on those around him, including son James, who sat next to him and was the detail man. This month's events may not be the end for News Corp, but it is the end of an era. As the hearing went on, the committee struggled to land a knockout blow on the duo. Both Murdoch stuck to the line that they had been let down by the staff they had trusted. And then the mood in the hearing turned. A part-time comedian, who went by the stage name of Johnny Marbles, came out of the crowd and pushed a paper plate covered in shaving cream into 80-year-old Murdoch's face. Murdoch's wife then, Wendy Dang, sitting behind him, was first to react, executing a flying right cross come open-handed face scratch to repel the attacker. His name was Jonathan May Bowles, and he would later plead guilty to assault and be imprisoned for four weeks. When the interrupted hearing resumed, the atmosphere had changed. Sympathy tilted back towards the frail Murdoch. The hearing soon wound down. Nonetheless, he bowed to the inevitable. Two days later, the company withdrew the B-Sky B bid. Murdoch was genuinely rattled by the affair. Those who saw him privately at the time were seriously concerned for his mental health. He stayed out of the public spotlight while he recovered. Never wrong for long. While the phone hacking crisis was roiling News International in London, the management at News Limited in Australia had their own problems. After a decade in charge, John Hardigan was nearing the end of his time. The downward trajectory of newspapers around the world was beginning to bite in Australia too. The number of newspaper buyers was falling. Despite the best efforts of inventive circulation departments, display advertisers were noticing. In August 2009, Hardigan gave a keynote address at the press club in Canberra, arguing that newspapers were still the main game. It was a speech that characterised the stages of grief that publishers were going through for their disappearing print model. There was denial, and there was anger, looking for somebody to blame. Hardigan told The Room that things weren't as bad in Australia compared with the US, where many cities were either becoming one-paper-turns, or losing a daily publication altogether. The whole structure of our industry is different. We are far less reliant on classifieds. Some say the trends are the same. We're just a year or two behind. Frankly, I'm dismayed at how many Australian journalists seem to accept this. Some are even willing to stick their byline on this opinion. At its most basic, it's just bad reporting. There's almost no evidence. It was not a speech that was going to stand the test of time but it did hint at one of News Limited's reactions to change. Seek an enemy to blame. The problems of newspapers were the fault of aggregators, said Hartigan. The problem lay partly with the likes of my eight-month-old blog Mumbrella and Eric Beecher's lunchtime newsletter Crikey, Hartigan told the press club. Then there are the news commentary sites like the Huffington Post, Newser and the Daily Beast and in Australia – Sites like Crikey and Mumbrella. Most of the content on these sites is commentary and opinion on media coverage produced by the major outlets, he claimed. These sites are covered in links to wire stories or mainstream mastheads. Typically, less than 10% of their content is original reporting. The sites that produce a high proportion of original content aren't making a profit. Almost anyone can start one of these sites with very little capital, no training, or qualifications. On that point, he was correct. Launching new media properties had never been cheaper. For a couple of hundred dollars, anybody could buy a URL, point it towards a website built on a free platform like WordPress, and start publishing. The price of sending bulk emails was tumbling. Suddenly, a publisher could manage an email list for 30 bucks per month. Compared with the cost of launching a print product, there were no economic moats to defend the incumbents. But he also missed the point, these new independent sites still needed to find something to say, and an original way of saying it, or there'd be no audience. Many of those starting these sites, myself included, came from traditional journalism backgrounds and had indeed gained training and qualifications. We were simply applying our skills in a new space. Crikey, for instance, was under the ownership of Eric Beecher, who had edited the Sydney Morning Herald and been editor-in-chief of Murdoch's Herald and Weekly Times group. Hartigan took another poke in the speech. A few days before, a reader had pointed out a typo in Mumbrella's comment thread. I'd corrected it and offered my thanks with the reply, never wrong for long. It was a reference to the unofficial motto of the News Limited, aligned, 24-hour news channel Sky News in the UK. Hardigan, or whoever helped him write the speech, had picked that up but missed its origin. He told The Room, One Australian blogger who shoots first and checks facts later is proud to boast that his site is not wrong for long. The attack was a huge boost. Most people in The Room would never have even heard of Mumbrella. Harto had just put us in the mainstream. I raced to post a response later that night in an opinion piece, respectfully arguing the case for digital journalism. I made the case that, like him, I was a newspaper-trained journalist and not the enemy. Harto responded, inviting me in for a coffee and we made peace. The day after the press club event, the Australian reprinted Hardigan's speech over a full page, accompanied by the headline, reports of newspaper's death exaggerated perhaps fittingly the word newspapers was spelled incorrectly my space odyssey by 2011 Rupert murdoch had been trying to put the genie back in the bottle for a couple of years he had begun to realize that online publishing was threatening to undermine the business model of his newspapers particularly when it was free in 2009 He gave a rare interview to David Spears of Sky News. Giving away news in the early days of the internet had been a terrible mistake, he said. They shouldn't have had it free all the time. I think we've been asleep. It costs us a lot of money to put together good newspapers. They're very happy to pay for it when they buy a newspaper. And when they read it elsewhere, they're going to have to pay. The fact is, there's not enough advertising in the world to make all websites profitable. We'd rather have fewer people on our website, but paying. And in 2010, Murdoch pointed towards tablet publishing as a potential gateway between newspapers and online. Publishers around the world were pinning their hopes on Steve Jobs' final invention, the iPad, hoping the digital tablet would allow them to bring back the magic ingredient of curation that newspapers offered and combine it with the interactivity of the web. In April 2010, Rupert Murdoch had declared in a speech at the National Press Club in Washington. It may well be the saving of the newspaper industry. And with the iPad, Rupert Murdoch was determined not to make the same mistake. Readers would be asked to pay. The company was there from the start. On the day Apple's iPad launched in Australia in May 2010, News Digital Media had launched a $4.99 per month iPad app. The Australian, and in the US, News Corp launched a $17.29 per month iPad app for the Wall Street Journal. Even more boldly, in early 2011, News Corp launched The Daily as a brand new tablet newspaper targeting worldwide subscriptions. It will be priced at $39.99 per year, and given its $30 million development costs, it might take five years to break even, Murdoch predicted. Like newspapers, it would have one edition per day. Paying for news on websites was an even bigger challenge though. In June 2011, Richard Frudenstein, CEO of the company's online arm, News Digital Media, accepted my invitation to give the keynote at the first Mumbrella 360 conference in Sydney in front of an audience of 700 media and marketing industry executives. The Australian would, Frudenstein announced, launch a paywall in October. The call was a difficult one. Although the advertising rates online publishers were able to charge had fallen in other parts of the world, they were holding up relatively well in Australia. The risk was that by putting everything behind a paywall, the lost traffic might cost more in missed advertising revenue than what came in through new online subscribers, particularly to begin with. But Murdoch had made his instructions clear. And elsewhere in the News Corp empire, including the Times in London and the Wall Street Journal in New York, broadsheet readers were gradually being persuaded to pay. The Times made the leap to a paywall in July 2010, while the Wall Street Journal had had a paywall since 1997, long before it was owned by News Corp. In Australia, the only news masthead with a paywall at the time was Fairfax's Australian Financial Review, which targeted only the business niche. It was charging an eye-watering $1,140 a year to subscribe and after a decade with a paywall, it had only 6,711 subscribers. And that was with the advantage that most of those big end-of-town subscribers would be passing on the expense to their employer rather than funding it out of their own pockets. It was time, Frudenstein told the audience, to start trying to change the perception that online content should be free. When it comes to online, the newspaper industry has been, let's say, a little bit forgetful about a revenue stream that has served a lot of media companies and, in fact, most products pretty well. The novel idea of actually getting people to pay for something that you produce, why pay for something that I can get for free, is a commonly asked question. A lot of the Australian's content is unique and of real value to its readers. That makes it the country's best and most influential news brand, which is why asking people to pay something for it is a very reasonable and logical next step. The Australian will be News Limited's first publication in the country to give paywalls a go. Not everything will be locked down. They would use a so-called freemium model. It'll be up to section editors which articles remain free and what went behind the wall. Readers will be asked to pay $2.95 per week. It was, as Frudenstein put it, less than the price of one decaf skinny soy latte. Interviewing him on stage after his announcement, I asked for his prediction of how things would look in 2021, 10 years hence. In 10 years time, we will have a large subscriber base that will be accessing our product across whatever device they want to. I believe in 10 years' time, a large number of those people will still be reading the newspaper, but a large number will also be subscribing to our digital services. Our digital services will have a lot more video. They'll have a lot more interactivity. They'll have a lot more community-type, loyalty-type programs. And I think of our print subscribers... The weekend Australian will have grown its circulation because for people who've got a bit of time, the printed product is still a very, very, very popular way of consuming media. I'm guessing in 10 years' time, our weekday circulation will be lower than it is today. And that will be more than made up for by our digital circulation. Tongue in cheek, he added, and we will have completely solved how to sell advertising across print, tablet and digital by them. Even as News Corp was gearing up for the long slog to persuade the public to pay for online news, it was admitting defeat to Facebook in the arena of social media. The company owned MySpace, which had for a time been the biggest social networking platform on the planet. MySpace had launched in California in August 2003, about seven months before Facebook. It quickly became a hub for music fans to share their passions on their own customisable page. News Corp jumped in less than two years later, paying $580 million for the fast-growing site. Initially, MySpace had continued to grow fast, while staying outside of News Corp's company culture. By 2006, it had reached 100 million user accounts and was launching in markets across the world. Then, News Corp got in bed with Google. Google offered a deal to News Corp in 2006. Google would place ads on MySpace for a guaranteed $900 million across the three-year deal. Google made similar deals around the world. In Australia, Fairfax revealed in May 2007 that Google would run its AdWords ads on the website for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Fairfax would get a guaranteed slice of the revenue. There was a hidden price to be paid by these media companies in exchange for the short-term revenue boost. They were in effect outsourcing digital advertising know-how to Google, while at the same time helping the company take a stranglehold on the developing digital ad market. For News Corp, MySpace had lost its way. Facebook's ability to connect people who already knew each other was helping it grow faster than MySpace, which connected people who liked the same things. Facebook was an ad-free experience, MySpace was bloated with ads – Facebook overtook Myspace's audience size in April 2008. Myspace's management had chopped and changed and redesigns and new strategies had not helped. User numbers kept falling, turning the briefly profitable site into a loss maker. In June 2011, News Corp sold it to specific media for an embarrassingly low $35 million. In a collision of three technologies – Murdoch would later tweet from his iPad, Many questions and jokes about MySpace. Simple answer, we screwed up in every way possible. Learned lots of valuable, expensive lessons. The Order of the Tummy Compass In Australia, News Limited was ready to make a change at the top. The editor-in-chief of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, would later write, The entire News Limited executive team had known that John Hardigan and Chief Operating Officer Peter McCourt had run out of steam in the face of the challenge of digital disruption after more than a decade in their jobs. We all loved them, but saw with crystal clarity that they had been stumped for several years by the digital challenge. On 9th of November, 2011, Rupert Murdoch made the change. John Hardigan departed after 41 years with the company. His replacement as CEO was something of a surprise. Although Kim Williams came from within the wider News Corp family, he was not a newspaper man. Williams had come up through the arts and screen industry, including time as CEO of the Australian Film Commission, starting Production House, Southern Star Entertainment, and for a short period, leading the ABC's doomed attempt to launch a subscription TV service. He had entered the News Corp orbit in 1995 when he set up Fox Studios at Moore Park in Sydney, owned by the company's 20th Century Fox. It would become one of the biggest film and TV making facilities in the country, with eight sound stages. He also got his first taste of News Corp politics. He'd expected to be developing movies, not simply providing the space for others to do so. Writing later in his book, Rules of Engagement, Williams recounts, I felt I was wasting my time at Fox Studios. I went there to build the new studio, but above all, to run a production company. And the studio executives in Los Angeles were more interested in a basic facility operation. The the to-the-point Williams, who walks a fine line this side of Blunt, had made it known to the Murdochs that he intended to move on from Fox Studios. Instead, the company gave him Foxtel to run. News Limited only owned 25% of the subscription TV broadcaster at the time. Telstra owned 50%, and the Kerry Packer-aligned PBL the other 25%. Telstra had the right to appoint the chairman. PBL got the chief financial officer, and News Limited had final say on the CEO. So incumbent Jim Bloomfield was abruptly moved on to make way for Williams. Williams had then turned around Foxtel's commercial fortunes. He took the company from an analogue to digital broadcasting model and tidied up arrangements and rights issues between the three shareholders. Foxtel went from losing $3 million per week when he arrived to finally becoming profitable in January 2006. At Foxtel, Williams had been allowed to make decisions and drive through change, but would he get the same sort of freedom when he was performing open-heart surgery on Rupert Murdoch's beloved newspapers? Once he arrived at News Limited, Williams moved fast, On his first day, the News Limited leaders in Holt Street were asked to gather in the small theatre on the ground floor used for training and presentations. Williams signalled that his mission was to make major changes to belatedly help the company address the digital disruption it was experiencing. Two phrases Williams used that day were to enter News Limited legend. First, Williams told the audience he was wise to the strategy of grin-fucking. Grin-fucking is the Hollywood studio exec practice of smiling to someone's face and then ignoring whatever commitments have just been made. It put people like the old-school newspaperman Chris Mitchell immediately offside. Mitchell would later write... We, simpletons from News, were horrified. What the hell was grin Why was our polymath, a bane, astute new CEO shouting at us like a spoilt preschooler before he'd even started in his job? Williams is yet to publicly share his recollection of that meeting, although he revealed in his own book that he had written a detailed account of his time at News Limited, which he intends to publish one day. Williams' second observation was to sum up the difference between his worldview and that of the editor's. The order of the tummy compass was no more. In the future, key strategic decisions for the company's publications would be made based on data and research, not simply on editor's instincts. Fairfax had brought in management consultants Bain and & Co and Williams made a similar call, bringing in Boston Consulting Group, better known as BCG. Within a few weeks, Williams had formulated his plan. In January 2012, he wrote a lengthy memo to Rupert Murdoch. He began by setting out the fundamental pressure points. The newspaper circulation has been falling for the past six or seven years. With the economy not yet bouncing back from the GFC, retail advertisers were likely to have a tough year. The company didn't understand its audience well enough and the mastheads were losing touch with the readers. The company's marketing team were uneven in their abilities. HR practices were outmoded. Cost cuts to date had been repeated and piecemeal rather than a genuine reset of the structure. And for the most part, the company's digital offerings were weak, wrote Williams. He warned Murdoch. Without substantial corrective action, it is an unsustainable scenario. He proposed a series of priorities. Reaching audiences that were important to advertisers was first on the list. Next came a rethink of the digital strategy. And perhaps most optimistically, or maybe naively, behaving as one aligned company, putting news first, ceasing the divisional politics, breaking many silos and eliminating substantial duplication and cumbersome decision-making. Williams set up an executive forum for his most senior team, meeting weekly and briefed to communicate downwards through the company. He planned to move away from the company's divisional structure, which saw many processes duplicated in every state, rather than being done once nationally. There would be job losses, Williams, who was going through a very similar process to that of his counterpart, Greg Highwood, over at Fairfax, put in place a plan to deliver annual savings of between $275 million and $400 million. He aimed to take more than $30 million of costs out of the News Limited sales team, but grow sales revenue by $80 million. He also aimed to grow circulation revenue by more than $10 million and the company's 15 separate marketing teams would be brought together as one. Editorial costs would be driven down by more than $70 million by more streamlined national operations. Print processes would be simplified, with one centralised pre-press team in charge of newspaper production, rather than state-by-state. He would also seek to share print sites with rival publishers. The number would not be made public at the time, but he was planning on 1,600 job losses. And that's finance. It was an intense time behind the scenes at News Limited. Williams brought a new energy, and while huge job cuts were coming, there were investments to be made too. In May 2012, Foxtel completed its takeover of regional pay TV operator, Ausstar, in a $2 billion deal, which had taken since early 2011 to get across the line and Williams was working on an even bigger part of the puzzle, taking control of pay TV channel Fox Sports and more of Foxtel. Since his father Kerry's death, James Packer had been selling down his media interests to focus on his casino interests. Although Consolidated Media Holdings was listed on the ASX, Packer was the largest shareholder, owning 45% of the company. Kerry Stokes' seven group holdings, owned a further 22%. The key assets within CMH were a 25% share in Foxtel and half of Premier Media Group, the holding company for Fox Sports Australia. The shareholdings were a holdover from an ancient peace deal brokered between the Murdochs and the Packers back in 1997. To launch Foxtel, News Limited had created Super League, a breakaway from Australian Rugby League. The Packers' nine held the Australian Rugby League rights. After a year of competing codes, the truce between the families had created the National Rugby League competition, with nine taking the free-to-air rights and Foxtel the pay-TV rights. To get the deal done, the Murdochs had handed over half of their 50% stake in Foxtel and half of their ownership of Fox Sports Australia. So if News Limited could pull off a takeover of CMH, it would take it back up to a 50% ownership of Foxtel, with Telstra still owning the other half. And it would finally give the company 100% ownership of Fox Sports. The billionaires were all playing nicely. Williams would later describe the $2 billion negotiation with Packer as fast and relatively trouble-free. Stokes also raised no objections. At the same time, Williams was making another acquisition. Five years before, journalist Alan Kohler, a former editor of Fairfax's Australian Financial Review and The Age, had struck out on his own, launching Australian independent business media. AIBM would include a subscription-based investment newsletter called Eureka Report and a general business website called Business Spectator, which will be supported through advertising and sponsorship. Along with Kohler, Business Spectator included big name business journalists Stephen Bartholomew's and Robert Gottliebson. They shared office space in William Street in Melbourne with Crikey, whose owner Eric Beecher became chairman of AIBM. The launch was financially backed by investment bankers John Wiley and Mark Carnegie. Carnegie was best known in media circles for his investment alongside John Singleton in radio station 2GB's parent company, Macquarie Radio Network. The Business Spectator site grew rapidly and attracted advertising revenue at a good rate for online at the time, a CPM, or cost per mil, which is Latin for thousand – of $50, meaning that the advertiser was charged $50 for each thousand times their ad was shown to a visitor on the site. The company's revenues had hit just under $9 million per year, with a touch under $4 million coming from Business Spectator and a little over $5 million coming from Eureka Report. But Business Spectator in particular was an expensive operation to run. The profit for the business came from the subscription revenue of Eureka Report, Business Spectator and its sister titles, Climate Spectator and Technology Spectator, was making a $1.7 million loss, while Eureka Report was making a $1.9 million profit. The growth of subscriptions to Eureka Report was also starting to slow. Wiley persuaded the board that it was time to sell and ran the process. Initially, Fairfax Media was the front-runner, with Cola and Beecher seeing their alma mater as a natural home. Once Fairfax saw the books, it offered around $20 million, but was moving slowly. Losing patience, AIBM decided to try News Limited. Williams, a fan of Cola's ABC credibility and interested in the subscription model, took only 24 hours to come back with an offer of just under $30 million. The purchase would also help News Limited to better compete with Fairfax's Australian Financial Review. News Limited raced through the due diligence process in days. Although it was a relatively small investment, it was a smart one because it emphasised that News Limited was not just cutting, but investing in digital media. While News Limited staff were about to hear of huge cuts and a major restructure – the information will be tempered with the company's investment in Foxtel, Fox Sports and Business Spectator. At 10.36am on Wednesday the 20th of June 2012, an email arrived in the inboxes of News Limited's 17,506 staff. It informed them that they would have to wait just three more hours until they learned what the future held for Australia's most powerful media company. The email contained instructions on how to watch a video address from Williams. For the staff, it will be his first big announcement since he took charge seven months before. The staff already feared the worst. Two days earlier, Fairfax Media CEO Greg Highwood had stood in front of staff at his company's headquarters in Pyrmont in Sydney and announced that presses would close and 1,900 jobs would be cut. It was a coincidence that the News Limited announcement was just two days after that. Originally, it had been due to be made a couple of weeks earlier. Now, though, it was becoming the bloodiest week in the history of the Australian publishing industry. But what News Limited's hundreds of journalists did not know, as they waited for the three hours to pass, was that a scoop was sitting under their noses. Williams would not be speaking to them live. He had recorded his video address several days before, A trusted outside production crew, known to Williams through his time at Foxtel, had been hired to professionally shoot the 13-minute video, filming him standing in his office on the fifth floor of the company's Holt Street headquarters. It was a carefully framed shot. The company's key newspaper mastheads were arranged behind Williams with the Australian top of the pile. An iPad at the time just a two-year-old innovation, was propped beside the papers, showcasing the homepage of the Herald Sun. And above William's left shoulder, four television screens played out Sky News and Fox Sports. What staff did not know was that the video file was actually already sitting on everybody's computers. Rather than risking a system crash, with thousands of staff trying to stream the same file simultaneously, the video had been surreptitiously loaded onto their desktops a few hours before. Nobody noticed. At 1.45pm, a pop-up window appeared on each member of staff's computer screen, inviting them to play the video. Nearly one in ten of them were about to lose their job. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.